in a world where some of the greatest motion pictures ever made are reaching their 30th anniversaries. One group of friends gathered together to pay tribute to these films. Pat Cantagallo. Dennis Matouche. Jeff Mazuka. Each week, we take a look back at one movie that is reaching that 30-year milestone. Whether you love seeing these films in the theater or enjoying them for the first time at home, we invite you to join us this year as we travel back in time to 1986. I am your host, John Reed, and you're listening to the 30-something Movie Podcast. And welcome to episode number 82 of the 30-something movie podcast. Uh, this time around, we're not going to be covering anything with movies. Well, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about movies, but uh, this time around, there's the music. Cue the music. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit about Superman. And in particular, we're jumping back in time 30 years to the 1986 miniseries in the comic books by John Byrne called The Man of Steel. And uh, I released an episode, I think it was back in July, might have been June, it was probably June, um, back when I was on, on vacation, uh, talking about how we were going to do a couple of episodes here and there on some of the comics that came out in 86, because when you think about uh, 1986 in terms of uh, the comic books, that was a huge year, pivotal year for the comic book industry. It was when, uh, some people call it the year that comics grew up, as uh, when comic books became more than just a kid thing. Uh, and adults were starting to take notice, and they wanted more serious adult-type stories. So you get things like a, uh, a different take on, on Superman that they did, um, you know, starting with the Richard Donner movie, and then moving into the comic books in the mid to late 80s. But then you've also got comics like Mouse, The Dark Knight Returns, The Watchmen, um, you've got Daredevil, you've got you know, all these other different things that started to... You started the little bit of the, not grim and gritty, but a little bit more of a realistic adult take on some of these things. And, and you're starting to get that, um, you know, it, it kind of went crazy then in the 90s when you had all these characters that, you know, it was, it was everybody became like the Punisher. Everybody had guns and everybody had long hair and it got crazy. Um, but at least in 1986, uh, we had these pivotal uh, pieces that came and a lot of these things are what influence the way we see the characters that we see them today. So the Batman today, you wouldn't have the Batman today without Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. I don't think you'd have the Superman you have today without the Richard Donner movie in 78, but then the John Byrne series in 1986 that we're going to be talking about this time. So this episode is going to be purely on the 1986 comic book series. I'm going to go through each of the issues. Um, if you want to read the issues and then come back and listen later, that's great. Uh, if you don't have them, they are available on Amazon. You can buy them as a graphic novel or if you find them individually. Um, I bought them when I was much younger, so I have them all individually as, as single issues. Um, so I'm going to be going through each of the issues. It's a six-part miniseries. We're going to take a look at that. We're going to talk a little bit about how this changed Superman from the way he had been from about the 60s. Uh, maybe late 50s, 60s until uh, 1985, 1986, and kind of how that's informed the way that Superman is today. And a little bit of a discussion on uh, whether or not Superman is still a relevant character. Have they, they tried to make him relevant again in 1986 by making some of these changes, and they're 
still trying to make him relevant today, and, and some people look at Superman and they say that he's really not a relevant character anymore. People can't relate to him, and that's why the last few Superman movies have not done well. It's not the fault of the character. It may not even necessarily be the fault of the people writing the character. It's society, and whether or not society really thinks that Superman is still a worthwhile character. As you'll be able to quickly tell, I have my own opinions on that, but we will get into that in, in just a little bit. Uh, in the meantime, I don't have any of the other guys with me this time around. We're going to get them together. Uh, we're going to be recording in just a couple of days for our next episode, our next movie episode, which will be Rodney Dangerfield's Back to School. So we're going to have that one coming out this coming Wednesday, um, but I don't have any of the other guys with me right now. Um, let me just say real quick right here at the very beginning, um, obviously if you haven't read the comic book, I'm going to spoil the whole thing by going through it. I may talk a little bit about some of the other Superman movies, so if you haven't seen any of those, then go see them and then come back unless you don't mind being spoiled. Last thing, if you don't mind, leave us a review on iTunes. If you like what you're hearing, head on over to iTunes and let us know. Uh, five million stars would be great, uh, whatever you want to do. Um, and then if you want to get in touch with us, if you've got any feedback, follow us on Twitter. Um, you know, we try to post a little bit on Twitter. That's probably the one place that we post the most. Uh, we do have a Facebook page. Uh, we've got Instagram. So on occasion, we'll put some stuff up there as well. We tend to do a lot on Twitter. So if you want to follow us on Twitter, that's where you'll usually find stuff out first. Um, but then you can also get our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Satchel, uh, Google Play, pretty much anywhere you can get uh, podcasts, you can find our episodes. So I want to jump in real quick. This is not, I guess it's kind of new movie news, um, and I, I may bring this up with the other guys when we get together to record, but one thing I thought was interesting this week was when Suicide Squad came out, it was getting mostly negative reviews from the critics, and you had a, a small but vocal group of DC fans, I think one person in particular, uh, who apparently is, is from Egypt, um, started a petition, and they wanted to get uh, Rotten Tomatoes shut down because of the reviews that were being put up for it, and they thought that it was unfair how Rotten Tomatoes always reviews DC movies um, lower than Marvel movies. At first, when I'm thinking about it, I'm looking at that, and I'm saying, well, it's not really Rotten Tomatoes. They are the aggregator for different reviews that are put up there, so it's not really them that's deciding, until I did see a few articles or a few mentions here or there that sometimes when people give reviews they are marked as either fresh or rotten. And some people claimed that they didn't have control over whether or not their reviews were marked fresh or rotten. And that there were times where you might have two movies that are reviewed exactly the same. Uh, the example I think that they gave was uh, a two and a half um, out of four. And in the two and a half out of four, um, I believe it was that uh, Suicide Squad was given a two and a half out of four and it was marked as rotten, whereas the Tarzan movie in this example was given a two and a half out of four, and it was marked as fresh. So I can see if, if that's the case, you, you could have some people being upset that it's skewed away from the DC movies, that it's not fair for them. The only problem is Rotten Tomatoes is owned by Fandango. Um, I think it was just purchased recently by Fandango, which ultimately, if you go far back enough, is owned by Warner Brothers, which or, or they have... And, and interest in Fandango. Um, and so Warner Brothers also owns DC. So I don't really know, I, I don't really think it's Rotten Tomatoes as being unfair, is is treating DC movies unfairly because they're owned by the same company. 
that makes DC movies. So, you know, I don't know if I would blame Rotten Tomatoes for that. I think you just got to let critics do what they're going to do, and if you disagree with them, then disagree with them and just go see the movie anyway. I think that's what most people are going to do. Most people, I don't really know that most people care what critics have to say about a particular movie. Um, I know that I don't. I would rather, rather I would much rather hear um, someone on a podcast like this. I'd rather hear what they have to say about the movie. Um, sometimes I think some critics, while I enjoy listening to them and I, and I like to hear their take on it, I think sometimes they really get bogged down in the the technical aspects of the movie making, the craft of the movie making, and sometimes I think some critics forget that you can just go to a movie and have a good time. Um, even if the story is not the greatest in the world and the characters are not the greatest in the world, sometimes you can just go to a movie and have fun. Um, there's plenty of movies that I've watched, and they weren't great movies, but I had fun. And so that didn't shy me away from wanting to go see them or even watch them again. Um, Batman versus Superman being one of them and Man of Steel being another one, I really don't care what the reviews say on Rotten Tomatoes for Man of Steel, and I'm not going to get my underwear in a bunch because it's, is it a, like 55% right now or something like that? I don't care. I, I like it. It's one of my favorite Superman movies ever. So Rotten Tomatoes is not going to change my opinion of that, and I'm not going to call for them to be shut down because they reviewed a movie in a way that I didn't like it. Um, so I don't, it just seems a little silly to me that somebody would call for them to be shut down. I wouldn't call for Roger Ebert, uh, or, or, you know, we talk about Ebert and Siskel, um, cause they were pretty prominent movie reviewers at the time of the movies that we're talking about. I wouldn't call for either of them to be fired because they reviewed a movie in a way that I disagreed with. That's their take on the movie. And if I, if I usually tend to side with one over the other, um, you know, historically, I, I think a lot of times I tended to agree with Ebert uh, rather than Siskel on some of these movies that we've looked at. And, you know, I'm not going to, I don't think Gene Siskel should be fired just because I don't agree with his opinion. Um, so I, that to me just seemed kind of silly that there was a group of people out there trying to get something shut down just because they disagreed with the numbers it was being given. You know what? Then don't go on Rotten Tomatoes. Don't give them the traffic. Don't go on there and just go see the movie. You know, vote with your wallet. So if that's what you want to do, vote with your wallet. Go see the movie. I'm going to go see it. I'm still going to go see it. Even though it apparently has gotten these negative reviews, I'm still interested enough in going to see it. I'm going to go see it. I want DC movies to do well. Um, you know, I, I don't want... I won't go see it again if it's not a good movie because I don't want them to think that just because a whole bunch of people went to see their movie that they're on the right track. I really hope they are on the right track, and I'm excited from what I've seen of the trailer for the Justice League movie and the, and the Wonder Woman movie. So I really do hope that Suicide Squad is you know, at least a, an entertaining action movie. I don't know that I need it to be any more than that. You know, I, I don't know that I expect it to be a Guardians of the Galaxy or, or something like that, but, um, you know, I, as long as it's entertaining, I'll be fine. So uh, that's all I have for the new movie news right now. Um, let's just go ahead and jump right on into the Man of Steel stuff. So this time around, we're taking a look at the Man of Steel. And this was a six-issue miniseries that was released from October to December. It was once every two weeks. October to December, 1986. The writer for this one was John Byrne. He also did the pencils on this, uh, and he was known for uh, working on X-Men. Uh, he worked with Chris Claremont on the Dark Phoenix saga and the Days of Future Past stories. Uh, 
He also worked on Fantastic Four, Superman. He wrote the first issues of Hellboy, and he also created the comic Next Men. Uh, the inks for this one was Dick Giordano. He was best known for inking Neil Adams in the 1970s on Batman and Green Lantern, Green Arrow. He was an artist on Wonder Woman, Batman, Detective, Action Comics, Superman vs. The Amazing Spider-Man, the crossover they did in, in 1976. And uh, one of the other famous crossovers between Superman and real life was the Superman vs. Muhammad Ali uh, issue in 1978. Uh, Dick Giordano also co-created the Batman character Leslie Tompkins and worked on The Sandman. Now, if you're not familiar with Leslie Tompkins, you'll know her if you are a Gotham fan of the TV show. Uh, but she was also kind of a a doctor that was a, an advisor to Bruce Wayne who also knew, I believe she also knew his parents, um, or at least his dad, because his dad was a physician. And uh, she a lot of times would offer another kind of mentor-type voice uh, alongside Alfred. And I, she also knew his secret as well. She knew that Bruce was Batman and, and um, was able to then offer him some advice based on his, his dual identities. Colors for this one are by Tom Ziuko. Uh, he also did Hellblazer, Action Comics, Superman, Supergirl, The Shadow, Blade, Wonder Woman, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and Detective Comics. Letters by John Costanza. He did Swamp Thing, The Dark Knight Returns, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and Captain America. Editor for this one was Andy Helfer. He was also the editor of Justice League of America. Also, when it was uh, revamped into Justice League International, he was a writer on Dead Man, and he was also a writer on The Shadow. Uh, some prominent characters... <clears throat> Excuse me. Since we don't have actors in this one, uh, some prominent characters that show up in this series are Superman, Clark Kent, uh, Jor-El, Lara, Jonathan Kent, Martha Kent, Lana Lang, uh, Pete Ross. I think shows up for a little bit in one of the issues, and he's mentioned a couple times. Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, uh, Perry White, Batman, Lex Luthor, Magpie as uh, a Batman villain. Bizarro shows up as well, and. Uh, I think that's pretty much it for most of the prominent characters that, that show up in this six-issue miniseries. So some background on this. Beginning in the 70s, there were several creators that wanted to reboot Superman's origins and change his powers to emphasize his humanity. So DC publisher and president Jeanette Kahn, uh, she was the publisher and president from 1976 to 2002, requested, uh, I believe it was in the early 80s, that some creators suggest continuity changes following the Crisis on Infinite Earths event that would help reboot the DC multiverse. Um, things had gotten a little out of control, and they wanted to take the Silver Age continuity that had been going since the, what would we say, the late 50s, early 60s, um, and kind of reboot that in such a way so that it wasn't contradictory or confusing for new readers. So I think the main architects of this new continuity for Superman would be Marv Wolfman, who had also worked on Blade, Spider-Man, Daredevil, Superman. Uh, I believe he created the character of Nightwing, and he worked on Crisis on Infinite Earths. Frank Miller, uh, who worked on Batman, Daredevil, Wolverine, 300, and Sin City. And Steve Gerber, who created Howard the Duck and worked on Man-Thing. Um, this is also something that I think came about a little bit because of the 1978 Richard Donner Superman movie. There were quite a few changes in there. When, when that movie came out, um, the, movie was, uh, the movie was popular. People liked the movie. But for comic book fans, it was really very, very different from what they were used to seeing in the comic books. Krypton was different. Uh, Krypton was much more a monochromatic, very sterile, uh, cold world um, compared with the very sci-fi almost um, Flash Gordon-type world that you saw in the comic books. 
Um, and the whole idea of Superman not being Superboy that he discovered in the 78 movie, he, he didn't really discover his heritage and his full powers until he was about 18 years old. Um, and then from there, he started as adult Superman. And that was different from the comics, too, because from the, you know, from the, the Silver Age time, uh, Superboy was always a huge part of Superman's history and his past. Uh, Superboy would go travel into the future and, and hang around with the Legion of Superheroes. Um, you know, he'd do a lot of time-traveling stuff. The comic books were, were way different um, in the 70s as well. Uh, Superman had switched from being a newspaper reporter to being a TV uh, news anchor on the evening news. Um, there were whole stories of Superboy during the Silver Age, of Ma and Pa Kent uh, no longer living on a farm. They had, I think, started a general store in, in Smallville, and uh, Superboy was friends with Lex Luthor, they grew up together in Smallville. Um, Superboy almost had a, a signal system where he had a, it was like a lamp, like the lamps would flash, um, you know, in his in his room to let him know that there was some kind of a signal from the police chief or the president or somebody. And Mon Pa Kent had built him a tunnel so that he could fly out of his room and uh, I think it would come out in the forest somewhere and he could fly out and not be noticed as Superboy so he could get off and um, you know, save whoever he was supposed to save at that point without being seen. So a lot of that stuff, when it didn't show up in the 1978 movie, and they took that in a, in a totally different direction, um, I think a lot of comic book fans were not huge fans of that. I wasn't alive at the time and, and was not reading comic books since I wasn't alive. Um, so I'm not sure about that, just based on what I've read. Uh, it was a big departure from what most people were used to. And so then you had... I think it was in the early 80s um, as people realized that, hey, look, this, this take on Superman that they've done in the movies is pretty popular, and it's, it's something different, and it's something that we think we can, um, we can use in the comic books. I think that may have driven some of their decisions when they decided to revamp the, the continuity for Superman uh, following the Crisis on Infinite Earth storyline. Marv Wolfman knew that someone like John Byrne would have the clout to kind of help get changes made to Superman. Uh, he and the others were working on this, but he knew that somebody like that, who was very popular and working over at Marvel at the time, um, would share some of their opinions as well. And, and I guess they sat down and talked at one point uh, in an, an interview that I read that Byrne agreed with a lot of what Wolfman and the other guys wanted to do, their ideas on changing Superman. So they convinced Byrne to come over to DC from Marvel to help with the Superman reboot and that he would be given this miniseries to be able to do it. Um, at the time, I think DC was also interested in the idea of doing miniseries because that would allow them uh, to give the creators and the artists some freedom and some flexibility without having to... Um, you know, stop and restart books, um, kind of like the way they do it now, where they just cancel books if they're not doing well. I think that gave them the freedom to be able to try some things and see how well it would be received um, and then go from there. Because this, this was kind of a time where you started a whole bunch of, of little mini-series that would be popping up here and there. Um, and I, I'm not going to say Man of Steel was one of the first ones, but um, I just I, I remember that happening more often throughout the 80s. Um, than any time before that. So the Man of Steel miniseries would be the basis for Superman's continuity from, I think it's about 1986 to 2009. Uh, it would get added to by the Mark Wade story Birthright, 
uh, that was another miniseries that came out in 2003. They would add certain things to it. They would make some changes to Superman's powers and a, and a couple changes to his personality. Um, but for the most part, it stuck until about 2009. Um, and uh, then they would, I think, ultimately replace that uh, with, let's see, it was Superman's Secret Origin miniseries that came out in 2009. And that was supposed to be a new rebooting of the Superman continuity, and that was the next time that they would kind of redo some of that stuff. The pre-crisis, if you're not familiar with pre- and post-crisis, um, if you're more of a movie fan, not so much a comic book fan, and you're wondering, what is he talking about with pre- and post-crisis? The story Crisis on Infinite Earths that was supposed to reboot the idea of multiple universes in the DC universe, the multiverse. Um, a lot of times, comic book Fans will refer to things with DC as pre-crisis and post-crisis, just meaning it happened before the Crisis on Infinite Earth story in 1985, and post being things that came out after that story, after 1985. So pre-crisis Superman, we're talking about the Silver Age Superman that existed from the late 50s, early 60s, on up until 1985. That continuity ended with the Alan Moore story. They got Alan Moore to come in and to write a story that ultimately... I guess if you want to call it, um, well, it's all fictional, so I don't, I don't know if you want to specify fictional, but it, it was a non, well, they were changing the canon, so I guess it could be canonical. Well, whatever. Alan Moore did a two-part story. We'll just get this straight here. Um, thinking through things with John on the podcast. Um, so Alan Moore came in and did, I think it was a two-part story called Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow? And it has been one of the most popular Superman stories ever written and imagined how the Silver Age continuity would all be wrapped up. And so he did that. It's a great story, too. If you've never had a chance to read it, I would definitely try to go find a copy of it. It just wraps up everything. It, it takes villains that Superman had during the Silver Age. It takes his friends. It takes co-workers. It takes a lot of the, the supporting characters, the supporting cast. And it just wraps everything up. It, it's supposed to take place, I want to say it's like 10 years after Superman uh, was last sighted, and uh, Lois Lane Elliott, her name in this one is, um, I believe she's retelling what she knows of the last sighting of Superman and retelling some of Superman's life and stories, um, kind of the last days of Superman to a reporter from the Daily Planet. And um, so the whole story kind of is her telling of, of those last days of Superman. And I believe that in that, and again, I'm going to spoil the story, so skip ahead maybe about 30 seconds or so if you want to go read it first. Um, I believe that by the end of the story, it was um, oh, Jordan Elliott, I think was his name, uh, is her husband. And it turns out that he is actually Superman and that Superman lost his powers uh, towards the end there. And that's he went off to live the life of an ordinary human because he kind of felt his time was done. He had done everything he could for humanity. And I think at the very end of the story, their son, I think was named Jonathan, um, you see him exhibiting some possible superpowers. Uh, and I think the Jordan Elliott character kind of winks uh, at the audience on the last panel. And that was just kind of their way of saying goodbye, that the Silver Age Superman stories were coming to an end and that you would have a brand new Superman uh, starting up. Um, they they kind of treated it as the last stories of Superman ever. Um, that you would ever see. And so, in respect to that Superman, it would be the last time that you would see Silver Age Superman. So this was followed up by a couple of other miniseries, actually three other miniseries, 
called uh, World of Krypton, which was released from December 87 to March 88, World of Smallville, April to July 88, and World of Metropolis, August to November of 88, in which they kind of fleshed out some of the supporting characters and gave you a little bit more background on, on some changes that you might have noticed from if you were a fan of Superman uh, from the Silver Age. Moving into this new continuity, it just kind of gave you a little bit of, little bit of extra background and, and uh, characterization for these characters and how they might have changed given the new continuity. Uh, the Man of Steel number one is also, as far as I can tell, uh, the first variant cover in comic book history. Um, it had two different covers. You could either see a cover of Superman or Clark Kent standing, tearing his shirt open on the front with an exploding Krypton in the background and his ship flying away from it, or the front cover of the issue was just an extreme close-up of Superman tearing open his Clark Kent shirt to reveal the Superman S-Shield underneath. Um, and as far as I can tell from what I could look up, that that is the first variant cover in comic book history. Now, the whole bunch of comic books have like 15, 1,600 different covers, and if you want each one, you're shelling out, you know, 100 bucks per issue. Well, not per issue, but um, there's just a lot of variant covers now, and it's kind of gone crazy, so this was the beginning of the craziness. The madness started here. All right, one thing I want to do real quick uh, before going into each of the individual issues was to talk a little bit about what's different between the pre-crisis and the post-crisis Superman. So what were things like before this miniseries came out, and then what are things like after this miniseries came out and during this miniseries? So some differences. So pre-crisis versus post-crisis. Uh, first off, kryptonite. There were many, many colors of kryptonite in the pre-crisis days. Whatever they felt like throwing in there, um, whatever they needed to use as a plot device, that became a color of kryptonite. So traditionally, you have green, which weakens or kills Superman. And I believe the first appearance of that was Superman number 61. Red weakens or removes inhibitions or causes mutations. Showed up in Adventure Comics number 252. Anti-kryptonite has no effect on Kryptonians, but is deadly to humans. Showed up in Adventure Comics number 252. Uh, X-kryptonite gives humans and animals superhuman powers. Was in Adventure Comics 261. Blue kryptonite is deadly to bizarros. It was in Superman number 140. White kryptonite kills plants. Uh, Adventure Comics number 279. Gold removes Superman's powers permanently. That was in Adventure Comics number 299. Jewel Kryptonite increases the mental powers of prisoners from the Phantom Zone, and that was in Action Comics number 310. When you get to post-crisis, John Byrne, uh, when he started up this miniseries, basically said, nope, we are going back to green Kryptonite, that's it, and there was one chunk of it that came uh, with Kal-El's ship to Earth, and that's it. Now, since then, they have expanded things way beyond that, and they got back to having crazy different colors of Kryptonite, um, even some of the TV shows like Smallville, um, they had different effects that kryptonite would have on people. Um, you do find out that kryptonite is now deadly to humans over an extended period. It can cause cancer, which we see causes Lex Luthor um, some problems later on when he fashions himself a kryptonite ring and thinks he's totally safe. Um, so uh, we went back to one chunk of green kryptonite, and that was pretty much it. Uh, one thing I did find that I was not aware of in, this, in the research I had been doing to look this up is that apparently there was a pink kryptonite, and the pink kryptonite, the effective pink kryptonite, was that it would turn a Kryptonian from heterosexual to homosexual. And while I was already mortified to find that out, 
that they had actually done that in a story. I'm thinking, oh, good grief. Way to go, 60s and 70s comic book guys. Then found out it was published in 2003. So I have not, I'm, I'm not going to judge the, uh, the merits of the pink kryptonite and, and whatever the story is. I don't have that comic book. I don't know other than finding some scans that people put up uh, on the internet. I don't know anything about it, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to criticize it one way or another, um, but I just thought it was um, a little uh, a little odd that something like Pink Kryptonite with those type of effects would be something that was around in 2003 versus I, I would have expected it to be long, long ago. Um, but anyway, if you want to go find uh, Pink Kryptonite, it's in, I don't remember what issue it was, but I believe it was an issue of Supergirl from around 2003. In pre-crisis, Superboy existed. Uh, Superman had powers as a baby. In post-crisis, there was no Superboy. Powers developed starting around age 8 and gradually increased until around uh, age 18. In pre-crisis, many Kryptonians survived, and they would pop up now and then. Uh, then Kal-El is the only survivor in post-crisis stories. Uh, Superman's powers seemed almost unlimited in um, pre-crisis, like he could breathe in space, he could push planets around, he developed other crazy powers like telepathy and, like, well, go watch Superman 4. Superman 4, where he can rebuild, was the Great Wall of China? I think he rebuilt the Great Wall of China with his eyes. Um, so, yeah, it, it's that kind of stuff that um, when you see Superman exhibiting powers like that, or he shoots beams out of his fingers or, or something, um, it was that kind of stuff in pre-crisis time. In post-crisis, that was part of it. They wanted to emphasize his humanity, so they limited his powers. He had to take a very deep breath to go into space for a little bit, or he had to wear an oxygen tank to go into space. Um, and he can't push planets around. He's not that strong, and he does not have crazy powers. There's, you know, There are limits to his power, so that was kind of a way of, of re-emphasizing his humanity a little bit. Another interesting thing that comes up, um, and this has been something that this is a difference that you will see in a lot of the takes on Superman, um, more modern takes on Superman, like the movies, the TV show Smallville, uh, the movies, the Man of Steel movie, um, Batman Superman. And what used to be the case was that Superman was the real personality and Clark Kent was the disguise. And that's when you had kind of the dopey, bungling Clark Kent. Um, but in post-crisis, starting with this miniseries, Clark Kent is the real personality and Superman is the disguise. And that's kind of the way that um, storytellers have been taking it since then. It really is that... Um, and you get that argument with Batman sometimes, too. Is like, is, is Bruce Wayne the disguise or is Batman the disguise? And so you kind of have this, this back and forth of, you know, which one is the actual disguise. And I think with Superman from this miniseries going forward, you do get the sense that Clark Kent is the real personality. Superman is what he uses to, you know, be able to keep his personal life uh, safe from anybody who might try to discover who he is. Um, in the pre-crisis, Lex Luthor is a mad scientist. And in post-crisis, starting with this one, Lex Luthor is a business tycoon. Superman was born on Krypton in the Silver Age. And earlier, um, starting with this miniseries, Superman was actually born on Earth that he was placed in a birthing matrix, and he was, um, you know, he, he was conceived on Krypton as part of the birthing matrix, and when his ship opened up um, on Kansas soil, on Earth soil, um, he was born. So technically, he is an American, and that's something very, very big for this story, and we'll, we'll get to that when we get to the end. 
Uh, Kryptonians could have escaped the destruction of the planet in the Silver Age. Um, in the in the modern age, Kryptonians are genetically tethered to the planet and could not escape. I don't remember that's. I don't think that that's something that was really mentioned in the Man of Steel miniseries. Um, but I think that was something that came up later on. Was that they were actually tied to the planet and they couldn't, um, you know, they couldn't escape because genetically they were. If they tried to, they would die. Uh, Krypton was a paradise in the Silver Age. It was a very much a, a very Flash Gordon, very utopian type society. Um, when I say Flash Gordon, I mean kind of like the costumes and things like that. Um, whereas in the 1978 movie and the uh, this miniseries, Kryptonians are very cold and sterile. There's no emotion. Uh, they were responsible for the destruction of their planet, kind of the overusing resources. Um, and uh, they were responsible for the the Black Death, or not Black Death, the Green Death that was the radiation that was killing them and ultimately would destroy the planet as well. In the Silver Age, uh, pre-crisis, Superman's powers kind of came from the molecular density of his body and the stronger gravity of Krypton. There are different explanations depending on which writer was writing him. Um, this time, Superman's powers are coming from the yellow sun of Earth, turning his cells into solar batteries. So it's a little bit more of a trying to do a a scientific ex explanation as to where does he get his powers from and how scientifically, how does kryptonite work and, and that type of stuff. Another big difference was in the pre-crisis time, Superman was the first superhero to ever appear. In post-crisis, in this miniseries, the Justice Society heroes predate Superman. They were around during World War II, and so Superman is not the first superhero to show up on the scene. Uh, pre-crisis, Superman had a Fortress of Solitude. This one does not, although it will be added later. And in pre-crisis, Pete Ross, uh, one of Clark Kent's friends, knows that Clark is Superman. And in this story, it's Lana Lang who knows that Clark is Superman. So those are just some of the differences. Let's get right on into the individual issues of the comic, uh, starting with Man of Steel number one. So Man of Steel number one came out in October of 1986. And the prologue title of this one is From Out the Green Dawn. And I'm, I'm just going to go through real quick on some of the different pages and, and kind of what you'd see if you're looking at the comic and just give you an overview of each one. So from out the green dawn, we've got a vessel flying towards a Kryptonian building and Jor-El is returning from a journey, examining the birthing matrix of Kal-El. Laura comes in and kind of freaks out that he has removed the matrix and, and, and obviously endangered the life of their unborn child. And they talk a little bit about the green death, a plague that has killed millions of people on Krypton. Jor-El says that he has discovered the Green Death is radiation from a new metal being created by a chain reaction within Krypton's core. He has a plan to save Kal-El, though. Um, he is going to, he has discovered a planet called Earth and a place called America and a uh, subdivision of it called Kansas. And he pulls up an image of a farmer shirtless standing out in a field um, and Laura freaks out again. Laura, I keep calling her Laura, but Laura freaks out again and is panicking um, that this person is walking around shirtless with his you know, hairy, bare body showing, and he's touching unprocessed soil and, and all kinds of other stuff. Um, so apparently very freaked out by the idea that this looks like she's having her son sent off to a barbarian planet. Um, then ultimately, as they get everything ready, Krypton starts to explode. Uh, Jor-El tells Lara that he loves her, which is something that is pretty much unthought of uh, in Kryptonian society, and Kal-El's ship escapes as the planet explodes. Then we move to chapter one, 
called The Secret. Clark Kent, number 15 for Smallville High School, scores his 10th touchdown in the last game of the season. We're going to ignore the fact that the scoreboard in the corner of the picture where they mention he's scoring his 10th touchdown shows that the score for Smallville High School is 52 to something. Um, if he's scoring his 10th touchdown in the game, unless for some reason in 1986 um, or whenever, what year that, ever, that is supposed to be in, um, when he's in high school, unless touchdowns were worth a different number, it should be more than 52 points. So, but we'll, we'll leave that alone. Even though I didn't leave it alone, I just brought it up, but that's okay. Um, he's a great player and his teammates are a little jealous. You kind of see them stewing a little bit on the, uh, on the bench. Um, Pa Kent picks him up from the game and takes him to a part of their land they had left alone for about 18 years. And he has Clark pull open a kind of storm door and Clark sees the ship for the first time. So Pot kind of retells him the story of when they found Clark, uh, thinking that he might have been a Russian, or Pa thinks he might have been a Martian. Um, a blizzard allows them to pass him off as their natural son. Apparently they had had a series of uh, miscarriages, and so um, the blizzard kept them from getting into town for about five months or so, so they could kind of pass him off as being their natural-born son. Um, and then they kind of skip ahead to age eight, uh, Clark gets trampled by a bull in a neighboring field, but he's totally unhurt. And then we see some other pictures of him lifting up a car at age eight to get a ball that's underneath it. Then he can x-ray things a little bit later, and then at about age 17, he is able to start flying. So ultimately, then Clark decides he needs to leave Smallville and help people instead of being a star football player. Chapter two, uh, called The Exposure, uh, it's about seven years later. Ma is keeping a scrapbook of the miraculous saves that Clark is responsible for. Pa sees a new headline, Mysterious Superman Saves Space Plane. Uh, they hear a noise upstairs. Clark is in his room, and um, he's just kind of sitting there in the dark. And, and when Pa Kent walks in the room, he says, they wanted a piece of me, Pa. And so he, they know that they need to do something to kind of keep his lives separate so he can still have a, a normal life in some way. Um, they do reveal that he's been in Metropolis for about three years, um, doing things secretly. And uh, when he does save the space plane, it just so happens that Lois is on board. He meets Lois, and then a mob arrives, and then that's when they're all trying to sell him something or get him to endorse something or to heal their baby or, or whatever. Um, and that's when he flies off and comes back home to see Ma and Pa. So the epilogue is titled The Superhero. Uh, you see Ma, Kent, sewing up a new costume, uh, pa and Clark come up with the S design, and um, they kind of come up with a way for him to dress and act like Clark, um, you know, acting differently, um, slicking back his hair, wearing glasses and all that. And then the last page, you have a the big iconic picture of him flying off from the farmhouse saying it'll be a job for Superman. So that first episode, first issue, uh, was really kind of the, did a nice job of a nice pacing of the story to give you the entire, you know, from Escape from Krypton on up to now he's Superman in one issue. And they did it in such a way that I don't really, of all the times that I've read it, I don't feel like there's anything lacking. I feel like I have enough of the story and I have enough of an understanding to be able to move forward and say, great, cool. This explains why there's no Superboy, because his powers developed gradually and gives you some other background on Krypton and Kryptonite and, and why things work the way that they do. Um, so I th thought they did a nice job of that in the first issue. Issue number two, called The Story of the Century. Uh, Lois and Perry are having lunch. I, I do like this first scene. Uh, you kind of see, you're seeing things as if you are Perry White, and you kind of see a rattling 
coffee cup in front of you and you see Lois with this shocked look on her face and then you see that they're sitting next to the window of a restaurant and Superman is flying by outside and Lois is asking something like, Perry, are you okay? Um, I always like that that opening picture. If anything, these series have really great first pages um, with some great images on the first page. So Lois and Perry are having lunch. Perry sees Superman fly by outside, and Lois chases after him to get an interview. Um, Lex Luthor is in a car nearby and tells the driver to try to get Lois's attention. She's not interested. She's in a hurry um, and tells the driver Lex can find her later. The driver says, hey, he's off to South America for a year. And her response is, well, he, then he can find me much later. You do find out a little bit later on that the two of them have had some kind of a relationship, whether they've been dating or, or whatever it is, uh, for a little while, but it's not totally serious, or at least Lois doesn't think it's serious. Uh, Lois calls in a favor to try to find Superman, and the next time we see her, uh, you think she's calling somebody for a ride or something like that, and the next time we see her is in a LexCorp helicopter. So on street level, uh, Superman is catching a purse thief, hears about a hostage situation, and um, when the when he gets back to delivering the purse back to the person it belongs to, it was this teenage girl who was carrying around this boom box and playing it really loud, and this is kind of one of those, when you call Superman the big blue boy scout, it's kind of one of those moments, and I, I still like it, and I still, this is something I'll talk about here in a little bit about why I think Superman can still be done well, I'm just not sure that they've done him as well as they could or written him as well as they could in the movies. Um, and some of the arguments, I, I'm going to tie it to the characterization of Captain America in the Avengers movies and, and the Captain America movies and how I think that that is a great Superman. Uh, but we'll get to that in a minute. So when he returns the purse, he then goes and turns down the boombox uh, and just reminds her that um, you know she might want to save her hearing and, and be considerate to others around her. And then he flies away. Uh, he arrives, has the police pull back. Uh, the police don't really know who he is yet, so they think he's kind of crazy. He walks in and pinches the gun barrel shut. He deflects a bunch of bullets and he melts the guns. Um, over the next few days, we see scenes of a lot of different saves, and Lois just keeps missing him. She's always one step behind him. Uh, back at the Daily Planet, Lois is pretty upset, and she's talking with Jimmy Olsen, and she gets an idea um, that she is going to have to manufacture a disaster for Superman to show up. Um, so Superman is flying around, kind of glad things have quieted down a little bit. Suddenly he sees Lois's car in the water sinking. He saves her, goes back to her place. They chat for a little bit. Um, and then she gets all excited that she's got this exclusive story now. It's just what Perry wanted, and she's going to be, she's going to win all these awards. And, and Superman knows that she faked the whole thing. In fact, he, he kind of comments to her that he knew the whole time that she was faking. And so she runs off to write the story. She gets to the Daily Planet, and, and Perry says, oh, great, thanks, wonderful. And she wonders why he's not so excited about it. And he said, well, I already have an exclusive story on Superman from our new reporter, Clark Kent. And you see that Clark Kent has made his splash at the Daily Planet by providing the first exclusive story about Superman. And, of course, Lois is not going to be happy about that at all. Then we get to Man of Steel number three, uh, One Night in Gotham City. And I did like how they took a lot of the pieces that you needed to know from the Silver Age. You know, Lois Lane is a character. How to kind of redefine her. She had been becoming a much stronger, more independent character in the 70s. Not so much the damsel in distress type thing. And you kind of get a, a sense here that if she's the damsel in distress, it's because she's got things planned out and she's doing it to get a story. Um, you do find out that when she ran her car into the water, she already she had an oxygen tank that was in there, so she wouldn't be totally in danger. And so 
they're using each of these issues to kind of cover some different pieces about Superman's past and to do the kind of modern twist on it all. So the One Night in Gotham City is issue number three, is to reestablish the relationship between Batman and Superman. They were friends during the Silver Age. You always had issues of Superman and Batman teaming up, and they were really good friends. And with this new take on Superman and Batman, um, that was going to change a little bit. It was a little bit more of a, uh, I don't, I don't like the way Superman was. Like, I don't like the way you operate. Um, you're a vigilante. I know some people could think of me as a vigilante, but at least I don't go around, you know, breaking people's arms and, and terrorizing people. And um, you get kind of the modern argument between Superman fans and Batman fan. And we'll get into that here in just a little bit. But I think this was the this was the first time that you really established that clear difference between the two of them. There were times in the Silver Age where they could have basically been the same character. Um, and they were just best buddies and would hang out all the time. Uh, not so much with this Batman and this Superman. So it starts off, Batman's beating up a guy, trying to get some information out of him. As Batman chases after the crook, Superman grabs Batman's rope, uh, and one of the grapnel ropes, and, uh, and starts flying him to police headquarters while Batman is hanging from the rope. Um, Bat, uh, Batman kind of gives him the slip and, and jumps off the rope, and, and Superman can't find him, so... Um, you know, you would think with, with senses like Superman has that you should be able to find him, but, you know, obviously Batman has the ability to, to sneak away from anybody. So Superman does ultimately find him, and Batman says he's wearing a force field, and if Superman touches him, a bomb will kill someone in Gotham City. Superman can't believe that Batman would do that, but he explains, hey, look, I, I need to be able to talk to you, or I need to be able to operate, and I don't want you interfering, so... I, yes, I've done this because I know you know you won't mess with that. You won't let an innocent person die. Batman also explains a series of heists that are connected, orchestrated by a villain called Magpie. Batman and Superman confront her, and she escapes by throwing an acid gas bomb. Uh, Superman inhales it and goes to space and leaves it there. He can't breathe in space, so he's got to come back right away. Uh, they ultimately track Magpie to the History Museum in Gotham City. It's her headquarters. And they discover that she is Margaret Pye, former curator of the museum. Um, and she's kind of had a little bit of a breakdown because she's curating all these beautiful, fancy things. And she can never have any for herself. And so she's kind of had this break, this mental breakdown. And, and they talk about how they feel bad for her, although I think Superman feels a little worse for her than Batman does. He still realizes that she's a villain and she needs to be taken down. In the end, Superman admits that Gotham needs Batman and the way he operates, but Superman still wants to know who has the bomb on them. Batman reveals that the bomb was on him the whole time, on Batman himself the whole time, um, and that he's still a good guy. He wouldn't have endangered another innocent person um, in order to keep himself safe from Superman. That, that That's not the kind of person he is. So they both kind of begrudgingly realize that, hey, Metropolis needs Superman. Batman's methods don't work in Metropolis. Superman's methods don't work in Gotham, so to each their own, agree to disagree, go your own way. Um, and in a, I like the comment at the end, in a different, rea Batman says this, in a different reality, I might have called him friend. And so you do get the sense that they are paying a little tribute to that, that they did used to be best friends, best buddies, um, and they have like sleepovers in the, in the Fortress of Solitude and, and, and crazy stuff, um, but not this Batman and this Superman. All right, so we jump on into issue number four, 
and we get to uh, Lex Luthor. So we haven't really addressed Lex Luthor yet. We saw him very briefly in uh, the scene where he's trying to get Lois's attention, but then he's off to South America for a year. Uh, this one is entitled Enemy Mine, and not the not the great movie starring Dennis Quaid and Louis Gossett Jr., but uh, different Enemy Mine. And apparently, uh, from figuring out some comments that they make here and there, this is taking place about 18 months after issue number two. So 18 months after um, Superman shows up in Metropolis for the first time and Clark gets the scoop on Lois, uh, this story is now about 18 months after that. So the first page is Lois at Clark Kent's door in a very fancy and also very form-fitting, somewhat revealing dress, um, telling him it's time to go to the dinner they're attending. Lois looks around at his apartment a little bit and is surprised at how clean and neat everything is. Uh, Clark has to go shave real quick, and you see that he shaves using a curved piece of metal from his ship, because um, obviously no razor would be able to shave him. Uh, Lois lifts Clark Kent's weights and comments that they're not very heavy, and he kind of comments, oops, didn't realize, you know, I, I can't tell how heavy things are, so I got those weights to kind of keep up the appearance that Clark Kent is a fit guy, um, because fitness was all the thing in the 80s, and uh, it could kind of explain why he had the physique that he had, um, but he didn't realize that the weights were something that were going to be way lighter than what hit someone like him should be able to lift, so he's like, oops, um, yeah, Lois will probably notice that, so let's, uh, let's go change that and go get some different ones. Um, come to find out, they get to the dinner, it's on Lex's yacht, his ocean liner, uh, he is back from South America, and he's trying to acquire Lois once again, um, because he does like to collect things, and he wants Lois to be part of his collection. When Lois finds out that the dress that she was given, uh, she was loaned that dress by Lex, but then Lex reveals that it was actually a gift. She's not a big fan that it was a gift. If she had known it was a gift, she wouldn't have accepted it, and now she's upset, she freaks out. And she basically, in a classic modern Lois moment, um, she basically tells Clark and Lex to turn around and for Clark to give her his jacket. She takes off the dress, throws it at Lex Luthor, puts on Clark's jacket, and storms out wearing nothing but Clark's jacket. Um, I just, there's a funny, well, and the funny scene where everybody's turning around and she's looking at Clark going, eyes front, mister. And um, just, a, it's a funny modern Lois Lane scene that I would expect to see in any of the any of the modern takes on Lois Lane, um, you know, from the movies to Smallville to you know, modern comics, and um, you just kind of, you get the sense that she's a very strong-willed, like nobody's going to give her any crap at all kind of person. Um, so she walks out wearing nothing but Clark's jacket. Then she walks right into some South American terrorists who are hijacking the boat. Uh, Clark jumps in front of her really fast and pretends to be knocked out, gets himself thrown overboard so he can change to Superman. Um... Lois and Superman together take care of the terrorists. Uh, Superman distracts them by lifting the boat up into the air. And then Lex tries to buy Superman, tries to put him on his payroll. Uh, mayor Berkowitz, the mayor of Metropolis, is there and finds out that Lex may have staged the whole thing just to test Superman out and see uh, if his powers were for real and all that. And Mayor Berkowitz is very upset and has uh, Superman deputized and has him arrest Lex Luthor for reckless endangerment of everyone on the boat. Uh, a little bit later, we see Superman rescuing a woman from a subway car who has gone into labor. Um, he gets her to the hospital in time, and as he's leaving the hospital, he runs into Lex, who kind of yells at him and says, Hey, I have a message for you. Um, you've humiliated me. I'm not going to be arrested again, and someday soon I'm going to kill you. And so that's the end of issue number four, where we got this introduction as Lex, not as the mad scientist and not as the uh, kind of 
insane villain, but instead as a businessman who is used to having things go his way. And now with Superman around and Superman having humiliated him, not so much. All right, Man of Steel, issue number five, entitled The Mirror Cracked. This one is supposed to take place about five years uh, since issue number two, so since five years since Superman showed up in Metropolis uh, publicly for the first time. The first page, Superman seems to have captured Lex in his classic green and purple battle suit. Um, if anybody owned any of the Super Friends uh, toys that were around in the uh, early to mid-80s, I think I used to have the Lex Luthor battle suit that he had, that kind of green and purple thing. Um, it looks a lot like that. Um, so you think that he's caught Lex, and he's making some kind of a comment like, you know, I've got you now. And in the next page, you see that it's actually one of Lex's henchmen in this suit, and Lex claims no connection at all to this henchman. And in fact, he claims that, well, if you look at the records, the suit was stolen, and this is a disgruntled employee that we fired three weeks ago. And you won't be able to get anything out of him because we discovered that these suits caused, you know, if you wore it for more than an hour, you'd become a total vegetable. So this this Lex Luthor is very good at getting away with things and not getting arrested because he's he's like a chess player. He's planned everything about seven moves in advance. And, you know, unless Superman starts playing that way, too, he's not going to catch him. Um, and Lex Luthor is just ridiculously smart. So you're, you're probably not going to catch him in a in a mistake. So Superman leaves, and Lex and a Dr. Tang, who were right there, uh, reveal that they've scanned Superman's DNA to create a clone while Superman was standing there. Dr. Tang reveals that the clone won't be perfect, and Lex is not very happy to hear that, uh, but he is interested to hear that it's because of Superman's alien DNA. Up to this point, everyone, including Superman, thinks that he's just a superhuman um, and not an alien. So Lex is very interested to figure out that Superman is actually an alien. Then we have a scene with Lois and her sister Lucy, who's become blinded somehow. Uh, we're not told in this miniseries how she became blinded. We do know that she was a stewardess, uh, flight attendant, um, and so uh, that she can't do that job anymore, but we don't know exactly why she was blinded in the first place. Uh, Lois leaves for work, and we see a scene of someone who looks like Superman rescuing an ambulance who's gotten a flat tire, taking it to the hospital, but it's not Superman because of the way the EMT reacts. Uh, Lucy Lane then in the next scene tries to commit suicide by jumping out the window, but is rescued by the fake Superman, and she makes a comment about how he he feels very scratchy or gravelly, his face, when she goes to touch it. At the Daily Planet, uh, Clark overhears some noise in the lobby and rushes down as Superman to find uh, that there is a figure that has very white, chalky skin and is wearing half of a Superman or wearing a Superman costume that's not entirely covered up by a Clark Kent costume and glasses. So Superman and Bizarro, although they don't call him Bizarro in this issue, um, Lex Luthor does make some kind of a comment where he says that he doesn't want this bizarre, oh, forget it, um, you know, just get rid of it. So he, he kind of inadvertently says the word Bizarro, but they don't actually name the creature Bizarro at this point. So Superman fights Bizarro, and they have exactly the same powers. In the past, a lot of times, Bizarro would have the opposite powers of Superman. Um, so instead of heat vision, he would have uh, you know, freeze vision and, and stuff like that. Um, but they have the same powers, and they're just as powerful as each other. Bizarro is dressed as both Superman and Clark Kent, and you can clearly see that he's wearing both costumes at the same time. So Superman burns away the Clark Kent clothes with heat vision to preserve his secret before Lois arrives. But then Bizarro grabs Lois, flies off with her, 
Uh, Bizarro takes Lois to her apartment where Lucy reveals that she can see a little bit thanks to being near Bizarro the first time. Superman and Bizarro fight some more, and Superman discovers that Bizarro is not really alive when he um, microscopically scans his cells. Uh, so he doesn't have to pull his punches. Um, you know, he won't destroy a living thing, but it's not really a living thing. It's more like a living computer, so he's fine with blowing him to bits. So Superman destroys Bizarro, and Bizarro turns into a giant dust cloud that rains down on the from the sky. Uh, Bizarro's shattered body and the dust ends up permanently restoring Lucy's sight, and Superman kind of remarks at the end that... You know, he didn't know that that would work, but that somehow he thought maybe Bizarro did, and that Bizarro was uh, saving Lucy's sight for her by sacrificing his life. You wouldn't actually see Bizarro again for several more years. Like they would bring another character back in a in a very similar way, like a botched uh, clone attempt um, on Superman, um, but it would be still a little while longer until you'd see another Bizarro character pop up again. Finally, Man of Steel number six. Uh, this one's titled The Haunting. This takes place 10 years since Clark Kent discovered his ship. So Clark would be about 27 or 28 now. Um, Superman flies back to Smallville. Seems to have been a while since he was back. He changes to Clark and meets his parents at the bus station. Uh, it's a very convoluted way for him to see his parents. In later years, he would just fly straight to the farmhouse. I don't know why this time he needed to show up at the bus station. And I guess they needed to be in the car for a little bit so they could have part of their conversation. Um, but at home that night, Clark can't sleep. He goes to the kitchen for some pie and encounters a ghost, which is Jor-El, although he does not know that yet. The ghost touches Clark and transports him to what seems to be Krypton. Uh, Superman can now understand and speak Kryptonian and encounters Lara, his mother. He comes to a field, or he comes to in a field outside with Lana Lang standing over him. Uh, Lana is back in Smallville and it sounds like she's been gone for quite a while. She reveals why she left uh, ten years ago, they kind of flash back to ten years ago, when Clark discovered he was adopted, he went to Lana to tell her about himself, then he said goodbye, um, and Lana said that it made her very angry, and she actually hated him for a while, but she's made peace with it because she loved him and was hoping that they would get married and spend their lives together, and that he treated her more like a brother saying goodbye to a sister, and revealed that secret to her and then flew off, and that she didn't get to share in that part of his life with them, so she was very bitter about it, and that's why she left town. Um, so Superman goes to find his ship and discovers that it's gone, and there are some tire tracks uh, leading away from it, so he's going to need to track that down at some point, although that does not end up getting resolved in this issue, in this miniseries. Uh, while he's there, the Jor-El ghost shows up again and begins to download memories into Superman's head. Uh, pa shows up and hits it with a shovel, causing it to disappear, so if you ever want to destroy very fancy, sophisticated, Kryptonian, holographic ghost technology, hit it with a shovel. Uh, Superman flies off to make sense of everything, because he's, even with his super speed powers of processing in his brain, he says it's still kind of all jumbled, and he makes, makes, needs to make sense of everything. And he comments on now there's this kind of long section of him just talking or thinking to himself about how he now knows everything about Krypton. He knows how he arrived on Earth. He knows about Kryptonian religion, uh, literature, the history. He knows his parents. He knows the planet. He knows the language. Uh, he knows uh, Kryptonian politics. He knows it all. So it's just been downloaded into his head. And then ultimately, so here, I'm going to, I'll get into this in just a second. He calls it all, quote, ultimately meaningless, as he doesn't care for Krypton at all. Only Earth and America matter to him. And that's kind of, you know, that it's Earth who made me 
what I am. You know, Krypton may have made me a Superman, but Earth has made me the man that I am. And that is the end of the Man of Steel miniseries. So a couple things in here. That was all six issues. Uh, a couple things in here real quick. Let's. I want to start with where it ends and where he says it's all ultimately meaningless. While I really like this miniseries and I think it does a great job of... of it was the modern take on Superman. And it's, uh, so many other things have been influenced by it since then. You see so many bits and pieces from the movies, from the animated series, the, the other stuff. It's all, it all comes from this original miniseries, or it comes from the Richard Donner uh, movie, uh, the 78 movie. The one thing at this that I really did not care for at the end, and I think it was just in the last few years that I've been reading it, so as a kid, obviously, it didn't, it didn't do anything to affect me in any way, but at the end when he says it's all ultimately meaningless, like that part, I don't think, I don't think I like that part very much. I like the rest of it. I like the way that they did the whole miniseries where they kind of revamped everything and they brought you the new take on everything. Um, I thought that the end was a little fast where it's like, oh yeah, we just download everything. And now boom, you know it all. Um, it's a little bit like, a little bit like the Richard Donner movie um, where, you know, Marlon Brando goes into his whole, you know, now we are moving into Kryptonian literature and uh, we're gonna, you're going to disappear for 12 years and then you'll come back and, and you'll be 30 and you'll be Superman. It felt a little bit like that. It felt a little rushed. Um, but the part where he says it's all ultimately meaningless, this, this shows you exactly where they wanted to take the character of Superman, that they did not want him to... They, they thought that the alien part of Superman was not what readers were going to connect with. That Superman needed to be a red-blooded American... And, you know, he's, he's, he's American, and he's from Earth, and that's it, and, and forget all this Kryptonian stuff. Yeah, it's great that that's all there, but it's meaningless, ultimately meaningless. And I don't think that I like that take on Superman. This is where I'm, I'm going to kind of switch over and say I liked how Man of Steel handled it, where you had a Superman that grew up, was a kid that grew up, and I, I really liked the take on it where... You know, as, as a teacher myself, I, I really thought it was interesting that they treated him as almost a a child who had special needs. Um, you know, that he couldn't focus in class sometimes because he was developing super hearing, or um, you know, just the other issue. You know, he could see through walls and it freaked him out, or he could see through his teacher and it freaked him out. Um, you know, things like that. I liked those scenes in Man of Steel. I really liked that development of his character. And then what I really liked was. He knew that he was different in some way. <clears throat> you know, he had seen, as a kid, he had seen his spaceship, and he knew that he was from somewhere else. But he, and he was always kind of interested in it. You know, it was, he was still going to live his life, and he was still going to be Clark, but he had this interest in, where do I come from? And I think anybody who, obviously, I'm, I'm not adopted, um, so I don't have, you know, have that same kind of sense of, oh, I need to go find where I'm from. But I do have, I mean, my dad was, was always, and my grandpa were always very interested in genealogy. And so as much as I, I mean, I don't go, I don't do the same research that they did. I'm, I'm sure that, you know, given some more free time someday, I might continue all that. But, um, you know, I'm interested in it. Like, I'm, I'm interested in the fact that our family came from Ireland and, and came from Scotland. And, and I, I appreciate that heritage, and you give me any chance, and of course, I have a, a flag, a Scottish flag up in my office, and, um, you know, I, I know 
uh, I know the differences between my Scottish heritage and my Irish heritage and, and all that stuff, and, and I appreciate it. And, and I know that some of that is, is what makes me me and, and the history of my family. But I don't sit here and go, you know, you know what, the fact that I'm, I'm you know, ultimately go back further in time and I'm Irish and, and Scottish, well, that's ultimately meaningless because I'm just an American. And that, that part bothers me a little bit. And I don't, I'm not going to get political on here, so I'm not going to start talking about this year and this year's election and that type of stuff. But I think that just bothers me a little bit. I think as a character, to me, the Man of Steel Superman, uh, Henry Cavill Superman, as he's discovering that he is an alien, that he has that sense of, it's kind of weirding him out a little bit. He's, he's freaking out just a little bit, but at the same time, it's like, oh, this explains so much. Like I totally get it. And he seems, there's those moments of his heritage where he seems proud of his heritage. And I think anybody would be proud of their heritage, unless you found out that your descendants were, that your ancestors were serial killers and, and they were all horrible people. I think you'd be proud to find out some information about your heritage and to be able to, you know, recite the poetry of your people and, and to understand the language and you know, I, I would love to be able to speak Gaelic and, and some of the other languages that, you know, my ancestors came from. But um, so that part I don't understand. And, and that part, I think, is just playing to the time in the early to mid 80s. Um, you know, some some American fever there and and trying to make Superman, you know, the this ultimate American. And um, I don't want to go too much into that, but I think that's I think that's what that was there for. And I think that. I think there were enough changes to make Superman compelling that I don't know that they really needed to do that. And in later years, they kind of undid that by having him be interested in his Kryptonian heritage. And then you had the, you know, you had uh, the character of like the Eradicator would show up later on. And so you had some interesting bits and pieces and a lot of some of the Kryptonian religion stuff came through uh, later on. So I don't really, I, that part, I, I wish it had not ended that way because I don't like that ending of the miniseries. Otherwise, I like the rest of the miniseries. I like the way they handled it. I like the pacing of it. Um, I just don't like how it ended with him saying, oh, Earth in America, and, and that's all I need. Um, forget everything else. So, yeah, that part I, it leaves a little bit of a bad taste in your mouth when you finish the whole thing, but otherwise, otherwise I, I, I like the series overall. Um, like I said, a lot of this stuff, you're, you're seeing your modern take on characters come from this time and this miniseries, the almost adversarial uh, relationship between Batman and Superman um, kind of starts here, where you see them as they're not best buddies. Um, you know, they're not going to go watch a movie together or go hang out, have a burger, um, but they they will begrudgingly accept each other's role. Um, that, I think, you know, you, you have the people that argued, you know, are you, are you Team Batman? Are you Team Superman? When the whole Batman-Superman movie came out, and ultimately when you look at that, it does kind of come down to which are you more hopeful or are you a little more pessimistic? Um, and I don't want to call Batman fans pessimistic because there are times and places where I'm, I'm a big Batman fan. Um, but I think in some ways that is the difference between the two. Um, you know, Batman is you, you do whatever it takes, even if that skirts the law a little bit. And, and Superman is more of a, no, you inspire um, you do what you can, and you inspire, and you, you are more the light that inspires other people. 
uh, as opposed to the darkness that scares people and intimidates people. And um, so I think that I think that kind of started with this series. Uh, you got that sense of of that Batman Superman relationship, and then you kind of come to the whole idea of this story is all about trying to make Superman relevant for a new generation to kind of undo the stuff from the Silver Age that made him campy and and all that and. And they were trying to make him relevant in the 70s anyway when they made him a TV news anchor as opposed to a newspaper uh, reporter because, you know, TV news was where it was at and, you know, newspapers old stuff. And, and you know, even in, in recent years, they tried to turn him into a blogger. You know, he quit the Daily Planet and became a blogger for a while. And, um, you know, it's, I don't know what it is. I don't know why in a lot of people's eyes the last few Superman movies have not been successful, and is it the way he's written? Is it society? Does society just not, are we not in a place where Superman is the character that we identify with anymore? I mean, you still have a whole bunch of athletes that, you know, you refer to as the Superman of their sport, or they've got Superman tattoos, or, you know, stuff like that, but, and, and I think that a lot of people, you show the Superman symbol, and I think that a lot of people around the world would know what that is. Um, you know, even if, even if they haven't read the comic books and they, maybe even if they haven't seen the movies, I think people are going to know what that symbol is. Um, so I don't know, this obviously is an attempt to make him relevant for the mid eighties and to change, uh, to change him in certain ways. Um, you know, a few years after this, they would kill him off and, and give him long hair because everybody had long hair in the nineties. Um, and make him give him a little bit more of an attitude and and stuff like that. So I, I don't know. Um, I don't know what is not connecting with people in the recent Superman movies. I can tell you what didn't connect with me in Batman versus Superman. I didn't think his character was done very well. I don't. I don't need to see a Superman moping around. Um, you know, uh, with regard to his powers and his role on Earth, and it. I. I want to see a Superman who is that hopeful symbol that people can follow. You know, when in, um, I think it was um, All-Star Superman, the comic book. I think it was All-Star Superman, the comic book. And then it was um, Jor-El in Man of Steel gives that whole speech about, you know, they are, um, they are great people and, and they can be uh, a great people and they will, you know, they will struggle and they will run after you, but uh, someday uh, they will join you in the sun. And he gives that whole inspiring speech about what Kal-El is supposed to be ultimately to the people of Earth. And and I just don't, I did not see that in Batman versus Superman. I saw a mopey Superman who was always kind of down on himself. And, um, you know, I, I saw the beginnings of that in Man of Steel and I was excited to see where they t- where they would take that. And I just didn't see that in Batman versus Superman. I liked the movie. I watched the movie. I liked the movie. I've bought the the Blu-ray and DVD of the movie. Um, but I did not like the take on Superman and Clark Kent that was in Batman versus Superman. I did like Man of Steel, and I liked where I thought they were going with it there, and I just have not seen them develop that to my liking, you know, because I run everything. I haven't seen them develop it to my liking uh, in the movie that came after that and now... If you've seen Batman versus Superman, you know what happened. And so I don't know where they're going to be taking that from, from here on out. Obviously, we didn't see 
Superman in any of the Justice League footage that we've seen from the new trailer. So who knows what kind of role, if any, um, he will have in that movie or the next Justice League movie, whatever whatever is coming next, because I know they keep making changes to it. But I, part of the question is whether whether Superman is still relevant. And I know that nowadays people kind of lean toward figures like uh, Batman or an Iron Man, um, you know, somebody who has that kind of sarcastic, dark attitude. They work outside the law because um, the law is corrupt and, and, you know, authority is corrupt. And that's kind, of, that's kind of the world that we live in where people have that belief. And this hopeful character that works within the law and, you know, does not bend or stretch it. Well, maybe bends or stretches a little bit, but it works within the system that exists I don't know. I don't know if people, if people can't connect with that anymore. I know that given some of the messages from the last uh, couple of elections, presidential elections here in the United States, um, you know, sometimes you do have uh, political figures who are trying to uh, spread that message of being more hopeful. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. You have a lot of, without getting political and without going too far into it, you do have... Um, you know, you do have a figure right now in American politics that is trying to, um, you know, show his strength and to play on people's fears and to say that he is going to help allay those fears by using strength and um, that he's, you know, he's not one of the established uh, system. He's not part of the established system. He's an outsider. He works from without, uh, from outside the system and on and on and on. And a lot of people have latched onto that. And so I don't know if it's the case that people are just so disgruntled with how things are that a character like Superman, who traditionally works within the system, just is not one that people can can connect with anymore, which I think is sad. I think there's a, a ton of stuff about the character of Superman that I think is great, and if done, if done right, no can defense. Um... I really liked. I I really liked when I heard that the new Fifty Two, in the comic books was starting up, and that they were going to reboot Superman and Batman and all these different characters, and they had the Superman that was the T-shirt and jeans Superman, and he was going to be like the Superman of the '30s and '40s, where, um, you know, he would deal with the corrupt politicians, and and he would, you know, he he would take care of the corrupt business guys, and and they started a little bit of that in in the early action comic stuff in um, the New 52 back in 2011, they started to do that. And I, I was really excited. I'm like, I like this Superman. Like, he doesn't have, he can't fly. He can only jump from building to building. He can make a, a tall leap in a single bound. So it was kind of the original Superman that was not as powerful as the Superman we have now. And I liked it. And I thought, oh, great. This is, I think this is going to be the Superman that people are going to find relevant. But they only did that for a few issues. And then they went on some crazy reality-bending, parallel universe, time, crazy... I don't know. I didn't like the first couple of years of uh, the action comics uh, in New 52. I, I got excited the first few issues, and I thought it was great, and I love that idea, that take on Superman, and then they went nowhere with it. Like, they, they glossed over it really fast, and I was kind of hoping that that was going to be Superman for a while. Then they brought back that Superman a little bit, when he kind of lost his powers or got depowered quite a bit um, just within the last year or so. But that Superman 
was too different. Like that one, he he enjoyed fighting. He enjoyed being able to not have to hold back. And that Superman to me was just more about, you know, finally I can cut loose and I can punch somebody as hard as I want. And I, to me, that's not Superman. To me, Superman is always somebody who he's got this ridiculous power and he's going to use it for what's right. And he's the excessive violence piece of it, that that's more of a Batman thing uh, than a Superman thing. And I think that given the amount of characters that you have in comic books, you, you can have a character who's Batman who has that violent piece to him and leave it with Batman and just let him handle that part. Let Superman be the one that's the more inspiring uh, public figure who can come out in the light and do his thing and the people love him. You know, the people in charge maybe don't have to love him, but the people love him. And I think you can do that. And I, I just haven't seen, I haven't seen the writers do that for more than a couple of issues. And then they just kind of just flew right past and, and didn't focus on it anymore. So I don't know. That's just my take. Um, I know that, let's see, I, I was going to try to to drop their names real quick. Um, if I can find it here on my screen, there was another podcast. So you can go, I'm, I'm going to advertise other podcasts on here real quick. Um, there was another podcast that I saw and I have not had a chance to listen to them yet. Um, and they were going to be talking their, I think it's their first episode. Oh, no, no. I guess that's their first episode from June of 2015. Um, I thought it was their first episode ever, but it looks like it's it's an older one from June 2015. Um, but it's their, their first episode ever. Um, and it was all about whether or not Superman is um, relevant if he's still a relevant character. So I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Uh, some of what I've said may have meshed with some of what they've said, um, but they are called the, uh, they're part of the Pulp Podcast Network. They're called Graphic Novelism. Um, and so uh, you might want to go check them out. Go check out their episode number one. I think it's called The People versus Superman. And so they obviously have probably gone into a little bit more in-depth than I have. I think their first episode is maybe even like an hour and a half, couple hours long. And I'm not taking that long to, to talk about this topic, but um, I, I think it's something that could be done. I think it's something that could be done well. I just haven't seen it done yet um, in the comic books, in the movies. Man of Steel, I thought, had a good start at the movie. Man of Steel, I thought, had a good thing going at the start. Um, and I just I wanted to see it go from there. And... You know, I, when Action Comics started back up in 2011 with the New 52, I, th I thought that was going to be a good start to it, and they just didn't take it as far as, as I thought it probably should have been taken for it to be relevant for a modern audience. So I think it just kind of depends. I mean, obviously, Superman's not going away, um, but he's also not the most popular character anymore. Oh, I, one thing I was going to say, um, when people talk about how, well, Superman, you, you can't do a character that's that's as bright and hopeful as Superman anymore because people just can't connect with it. Well, I would then take you across the pond, or not across the pond, but across the aisle to Marvel Comics and point out that Captain America is a brighter, hopeful, um, you know, sometimes they kind of pick on him. I, I like the one in Age of Ultron where he, he says something and he comments on Tony Stark's language and uh, then they comment that back to him later on and He's a little bit more of the innocent, uh, kind of Boy Scout type guy. And I think that that is a great Superman characterization. I wish that DC would take a look at that and say, okay, people like Captain America. Captain America 
while he still can get in the fights, he can still beat a guy up. Um, when he's not fighting, he's got a personality. He's usually pretty confident in himself. Um, you know, he's, he's got a good character. Um, you can tell he was raised right. Sometimes when, I, when you see this kind of mopey, depressed Superman, then that makes me think that Jonathan and Martha Kent were not great parents. Um, whereas I see this, you know, this Captain America, you know, the, the one part I loved, I think we talked about it in our Civil War episode, the one part that I loved is where he's in the fight with Iron Man and he makes the comment, Iron Man says something like, you know, stay down, final warning, and he makes the comment, I could do this all day. And that flashes back, that in my mind, I flashed back to the first, the Captain America, the first Avenger, when he says that to the guy that's punched him outside the movie theater. And, and he's like, you know, I, I could do this all day when he's the little wimpy guy, uh, little wimpy Steve Rogers. And to me, that's the kind of attitude, that's the kind of character that Superman needs to have. I don't know why lately it's needed to be this dark, brooding, mopey, depressed take on Superman. Oh, I have all these powers. I'm so different from everyone else. Woe is me kind of thing. And it just doesn't need to be that way. I think Captain America is a great character. Marvel has done it right. And I'm a DC guy. So before anybody jumps all over me and says, oh, you like Marvel better than DC, I'm a DC guy. And I love the DC comics way more than Marvel comics. I still like Marvel, but like DC so much better, like the characters better. But I think that the Marvel movies the Marvel Cinematic Universe has done Captain America in such a way that I look at that and I say, there you go. There's your Superman. Make your Superman like that, and I think that you'd have a good movie. Um, so I, I don't know. Going forward, I don't know what they're going to do. They obviously have uh, some room to make some changes uh, to the character coming up in the near future with the next few movies, so we'll just we'll see where they go from there. But... Um, I think that's going to do it for this episode on the man of steel. Um, again, if you have not read this comic before I've given away everything, but there's a lot of stuff, um, a lot of stuff that I didn't talk about. The art is great. I mean, one of the classic takes on Superman is the John Byrne Superman. And he started off the initial run when they rebooted Superman in 86 as well. Um, cause they, they kind of paused Superman in action comics for a while to, released this miniseries, and then Superman in Action came back after that, and John Byrne, I think, was working on both of them for a while. Um, but just a great classic take on Superman, just a, a classic look. Um, probably one of my favorite Supermans behind Dan Jurgens. Dan Jurgens is always my favorite Superman. Um, you know, he was the artist when they had the initial Death of Superman storyline, and, and in kind of the late 80s, early 90s, I think he started late 80s, um, but early 90s, uh, Superman on up through, I think he was on until like 97, 98 maybe. Um, you know, but he, he's, that was when I was collecting. Um, and the irony of this being episode number 82 is that one of the very first issues of Superman that I got when I was collecting was Superman number 82. Uh, my dad brought him back for me. We were living in London at the time, and he brought me back, I think it was Superman number 82, and Batman number 499, or no, he brought me back issue number 81, and Batman number 499, and I remember looking at it going, whoa, wait a minute, Superman's wearing black and silver, and has long hair, and there's a whole bunch of other Superman, and they're fighting a bad Superman? 
and Batman's back is broken and there's some other crazy guy with these crazy gloves that's taking his place and there's this villain called Bane that can just crack Batman's back like that. Hold on. I need to collect these from now on. Um, so that started the obsession that I'm recording down in my basement right now and I'm glancing over and looking at the thousands of comic books I have on the shelves over there. But uh, it was issue number 81 and uh, Batman number 499 that started it all. But uh, it was issue number 82 that I it was the first one I kind of bought on my own. Uh, Superman number 82 and Batman number 500 uh, I bought at the same time. And those had very, uh, they were very 90s comics. They had the very shiny foil covers. And um, that was when, I think, uh, 82 was when Superman kind of came back. It, w- it was the official uh, Superman's back after having died and, and been revived. And so, ironically, our issue number, or our episode number 82 for our podcast uh, is going to be the one on the Man of Steel Superman comics. So, um, But yeah, if you want to find these, you can go on Amazon. You can look at these either in their collected form uh, or you can track down the individual issues. I have the individual ones just because that's how I've bought them over the years. Oh, my last funny story about this was I have a tendency to... If I can grab my... Where's, where's issue number one here? Issue number one. There we go. So... I have issue number one right here, and I have a tendency to misunderstand things a lot. Uh, when I went to, I think it was my first weekend, uh, getting dropped off at college, and I remember my mom and dad telling stories about uh, being in college in Austin, Texas, and you know you'd have all these, all these people would show up to, um, you know, play concerts in Austin, Texas, and so you know I as a kid, as a teenager, I'm. I'm Hearing all that, I'm like, oh, college is so cool. Like, these people just show up and play concerts all the time. And, and uh, oh, it's amazing. I can't wait to go to college. So then when I went to college, I went to the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And I had this sense that, oh, I mean, there's going to be people around here all the time. Like, there's going to be concerts. And, there's, and there were. But we passed by uh, one of the bars on campus and the marquee on the bar said that uh, Friday night was Jimmy Buffett night. And the innocent young freshman in college that I was, I'm walking with my mom and dad, and, and I look up and I, and I go, oh, man, Jimmy Buffett's going to be here. And my dad just kind of laughs. And I'm like, well, w- what do you mean he's not going to be? It, it says Jimmy Buffett night. And they're like, no, no, no. It, Jimmy Buffett will not be here at playing at this bar it's different. It's not. It's Jimmy Buffett themed night. It's not him himself. No. No, okay, that's not quite as exciting. Um, I had the same experience with Man of Steel number one. When I, as a young kid, not yet collecting comics, um, found this Man of Steel number one, I think it was, I might have found it in a, oh, it was probably in England, was living in England in the early 90s, and I think I found it there, and the cover looked old to me. I couldn't tell quite how old, but it looked old. It was Man of Steel number one, and I got crazy excited. I bought it for maybe what would have been the equivalent of like a dollar, dollar twenty-five, something like that. And um, I just I, I was I was so psyched. I was like, I got the first issue of Superman. I wonder how much this thing is worth. And so then I just, I like hid it in my room and I thought I had totally pulled one over on the the guy in the comic book store. 
And then I think uh, around about the time I started getting or, or uh, finding Wizard Magazine, and I think I finally went and looked it up in Wizard Magazine, and it was like, this one is worth two fifty. I was like, okay, well, that's not. And then like a little while later, I realized that no, it's Action Comics number one would have been the very first issue of Superman from 1938, not Man of Steel from 1986. And I didn't know the year at the time when this came out, and I was not well-versed in comics, so dumb, innocent little me thought I had the very first Superman issue ever. So it holds a special place in my heart, but it's only probably worth about $2. So if you have not read it, go find it somewhere. Collected, uh, you can probably get it on Amazon or somewhere like that. I don't know if Comixology has these if you buy comics online. Uh, they might have some on there, but there's some other places that you can get. Um, you can find your comics online, but Amazon usually has some really good deals on the, the graphic novels. Um, so I don't know which one we'll do next uh, for the 1986 in comics. That one will probably be coming out in maybe in September. Um, but we might take a look at either uh, The Dark Knight Returns or uh, Watchmen um, or might do one of the other one of the other graphic novels or comics that we talked about before, but um, I may may do Watchmen. Might do Watchmen and I might have that come out in September. So um, if you want to go ahead and follow us on Twitter, uh, I'll be able to. I'll announce that on Twitter uh, coming up probably in a couple weeks or so to let you know. Um, otherwise, you can follow the rest of our stuff on 30podcast.com. That's our official website uh, where you can get links to our Patreon page if you're interested in supporting us. Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't break the bank uh, to publish our podcast, but it does. There is a cost involved in it, and if we had just a few of our listeners donating towards that, all of our costs would be covered. Even if it's just like a dollar a month, uh, our costs would be covered for the entire year for hosting the website, running the podcast, hosting all that. Um, so if you are so inclined to do that, um, please go ahead and head on over to 30podcast.com, and there's a link to our Patreon page. Otherwise, you can reach us at 30podcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at 30podcast. That's 30podcast. Facebook.com slash 30podcast. We're on Stitcher, Satchel, Google Play Podcasts, iTunes, and you can listen to us directly on 30podcast.com. We're also on Instagram, and as soon as something else comes out, we'll probably be on there too. But if you want to head over to 30podcast.com, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that you can find there. We have a voicemail line if you'd like to call in, since this is an audio medium. We'd love to hear some feedback from you, and we will even play that and react to it on the show. Um, and there is also a form on there for you to suggest movies. If we, are, um, if we have our list of movies and you are looking at it going, hey, whoa, 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 there's a great movie from 1986 or next year, 1987, coming up, and it's not on your list, and... Um, I want to suggest it. I think you guys should talk about it. Uh, there's a form that you can get to on our website where you can suggest a movie for us. So let us know because we would love to hear uh, what you're thinking. Um, but again, please go ahead and follow us on Twitter. And if you subscribe to us through iTunes, uh, leave us a review on iTunes and let us know how you think we're doing. Otherwise, we will see you actually in just a few days uh, coming up this Wednesday. Our episode number 83 is going to be Back to School starring Rodney Dangerfield. So if you feel like you want to give some respect uh, to the great Rodney Dangerfield, come on back on Wednesday, and we will have that one up for you. Otherwise, we will see you next time. So thanks for joining us, and go read some comic books. Bye.